Now, if you turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 2. When I was in seminary, I was required to take a pastoral ministry class that involved making rounds with a hospital chaplain at the USC Medical Center. As he was taking me down the, the halls, uh, he opened the door to a morgue and pointed to shelf after shelf of uh, body bags. And he said, I want you to notice that the only identity on these bags are numbers. It's the label. For the most part, these bodies had been found unidentified, homeless, nameless, meaningless, I guess, for all he knew. Although we know that's not the case. Each person is created in the image of God and has meaning. But for that day, in that morgue, that person had no name, no family, just a number on the back. And that's a startling wake-up call. I realize that one day I'm going to be in a bag with a number. My identity, difference between me and another person, a number. Well, the passage of Scripture we will be looking at in James 2 raises the stakes even higher. The Lord's brother, James, is concerned about faith that is, in effect, meaningless and insignificant. A faith that is as beneficial as demons' faith. He makes these bold statements. But let me do the illustration. Look at uh, James 2.14. What good, what profit, what advantage, what value is it, my brothers, if someone says, he professes, it's a continual profession, he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Is it a faith that's characterized by salvation? 26 provides an inclusio or a sandwich for this text. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead so also faith apart from works is dead. Death. It's a dead faith. James is concerned that there would be people among the body of believers that are convinced they have a faith, profess it, speak about it, but in fact they do not. And in James 5.8, his concern is that the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then 5.9 he says, behold, he's drawing their attention, behold, The judge is standing at the door. It's out of love and care for the body. It is his heartbeat that his readers have an opportunity to have their faith examined by the x-ray of the word of God, the CT scan of the word of God. In fact, we could contend that chapter 2, 14 through 26 is the heartbeat of the book of James. His concern is with living, saving faith. What is it? What is its nature? What is its character? What does it look like? Indeed, it will serve as a rebuke for some, but an encouragement to others. And hopefully you will walk away encouraged. It's interesting when you go to James chapter 1, go ahead and turn there. At the very beginning, verses 1 through 3, we'll actually cover verse 4 as well. There's some similarities, some affinity with what James shares in this book with the life of Israel, the nation Israel. Let's first look at James' content, and then I'll take you back to Deuteronomy for some comparison here, hopefully to set some context for this heartbeat. James, verse 1, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So they're believing, professing, uh, believing Jewish Christians. They were well aware of Jewish history, of Israel's history. Greetings. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, a test that belongs to the need of faith, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We want to draw attention to some of those phrases, particularly lacking in nothing, the testing of faith. But James constructs these test scenarios, circumstances, to examine faith. In chapter 1, 9 through 10, he describes humble circumstances and rich circumstances. How will faith respond? In chapter 1, 13 through 15, he describes temptation. How will faith respond? Will it blame God? 
In chapter 119 through 27, he describes the conviction of the scriptures. When we open the scriptures like a mirror, a spiritual mirror, and we see our faults, we see our sin, what happens? We just ignore it, harden the conscience and walk away? Or does it have an effect in our lives? Does this law of liberty, the gospel that has freed us from guilt and condemnation, transform our lives? It becomes a test. In chapter 2, 1 through 13, partiality becomes a test. How do we deal with brothers and sisters who are in need? Do we push them behind us, put them at our footstool and say, well, I'm going to show my worth by those that I gather around me. I want them to be rich and well-esteemed to reflect my worth. How does faith respond? The tongue. In chapter 3, 1 through 18, he describes the tongue. How does the tongue respond? What wisdom comes forth? Quarrels in chapter 4. Quarrels will demonstrate where faith lies. Injustice in chapter 5. And suffering in chapter 5. So all these become a test case scenario to, to check the heartbeat of faith. Is it alive? Is it real? Is it genuine? It allows us as believers to be encouraged that these tests, these trials were met for the need of faith. Now look at the hope he provides in James 1.12. James 1.12, blessed is the person who's fulfilled in the Lord. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. That's the fruit of living faith, he told us in chapter 1, 3, and 4. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, when those tests are ended for the needs of faith, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So life for you, beloved, is a series of tests to examine faith. And when those tests are done, you will be ushered into the throne of the Lord to receive the crown of life. <laughs> hmm, tests have a purpose. Well, they did in the life of Israel too. Notice before we go there, notice verse 4 again, lacking in nothing and tests of faith. Now I would like to take you to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy 1, 30. Verse 30. The Lord is speaking to the second generation. The first generation perished in the wilderness. They obviously didn't believe the promises of God. And so um, they perished in the wilderness underneath God's uh, judging hand. And so he speaks to the children who are now grown up. He tells them why he led them into the wilderness. Verse 30, chapter 1, Deuteronomy. The Lord your God, who goes before you, will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son, all the way that you went until you came to this place, you were in the wilderness that you might experience the Lord's hand to carry you. He digs in a little deeper in chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. There's intimacy there. He's there. He's been leading them through the wilderness. He hasn't abandoned them. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. Here's our phrase. You have lacked nothing. He brought them in the wilderness to prepare them for the promised land. Wonderful picture of the promise set for us. Heaven. Hebrews connects that. Chapter 3 and 4. It's a wonderful picture. But for Israel, they were brought into a wilderness with a purpose, to test faith and to drive that faith to rest in the Lord. They may recognize they lack nothing. They have everything they need in the Lord. Now, he provides some warnings that appeals to this test. Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger. But what did he do? He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The Lord tests their hearts, brought them into a place where they lacked in order to meet their need, to increase their faith in him to test their hearts. Now he warns them in verse 10, and you shall eat and be full. That is, he'd bring them into the promised land. 
And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. There's the test. Would they turn to themselves? Or would the, the wilderness drive them to their sufficiency in the Lord? James writing to Jewish tribes that have been scattered abroad that are well aware of these terms, testing of faith, that you might lack nothing. James says there's a purpose. It's to drive us to the Lord, to examine our faith. That's not... While we read James 2, 14 through 26, you will... It gets convicting. It does. We'll be convicted together. But he writes this in James 5, 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. It's meant to be a promise of encouragement, the Lord's compassion and mercy to lead us in the wilderness, to drive us to himself, because he, brothers and sisters, is our greatest good. It's our harm to think that these passing, flitting things that we put our trust in are reality, that they will secure us and bring hope. They will not. They will abandon us. And so the wilderness trials, the difficulties that the Lord leads us into reminds us that He is our greatest good and we lack nothing in Him. So it becomes an opportunity to examine faith in the context of the wilderness trial. love how Mike Grimes picked the song, Blessed Be the Lord, describing blessing Him in wilderness. I don't know if he planned that. I, know he, I didn't tell him we were going to look at Exodus or Deuteronomy, but the Lord's providence I ascribe it to. It's encouraging to reflect on blessing God in the wilderness trials. Well, we're going to look at five realities that characterize faith. Five characteristics of this living faith. A faith that is grounded in the righteousness of Christ. That's the key. It is grounded in the righteousness of Christ. It is in union with Jesus Christ. Two verses, I think, that will help undergird this. Faith grounded in Christ, particularly his righteousness. Chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1 of James. And we'll go back to our text. My brothers, show no partiality, and this is the phrase, as you hold the faith, a particular faith, the faith, what faith? A faith that is rooted, I will add, the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Look at all the titles there. Lord, Sovereign, Jesus, Yeshua, Savior, Christ, Messiah, Mashiach, the Anointed One, the King. Faith is grounded in that one, the Savior, the King, the Lord, the Sovereign. He is the Lord of glory. That's where believing faith is grounded. Now, look at the example of Abraham in chapter 2, verse 23, because this becomes a hallmark of this section here. We're going to need to drive back to this verse. This, this section has become a, a, a text of much controversy as he makes statements that were justified by works, and we want to unpack that. You're going to find many in false religions will say, oh, faith and add my own works to be justified. Is that what he's talking about? Well, let's draw comfort from uh, similar themes that Paul uses in Romans 4 as they both appeal to Genesis 15:6, where God promised Abraham a seed and through that seed promise, Abraham believed God his trust in salvation. He's credited for righteousness. Let's look at James' statement here. And the scripture was fulfilled. That says, Abraham believed God. That's the object of his faith. There's no works here added. It's faith alone in God's promise alone. We're going to add in Christ alone because of what we read in 2.1, a faith that's in Christ. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Notice this, this change of his state and condition. He's no longer an enemy. What is he called? A friend. He's called a friend of God. From guilt 
to a righteous standing received through faith and one object of hope, namely God, and the promises of Christ Jesus. You want to find much encouragement there as he begins to unpack this because his point is to say that kind of faith that's grounded in Christ has to be powerful. There has to be evidence. If Christ has stepped into time and space to take someone who's dead and grant resurrection life, that kind of power that has freed us from the guilt and condemnation of the law, that kind of power that has raised us up in the heavens in Christ Jesus, to say that that doesn't do anything in the Christian life, there's no effect, there's no fruit, there's a problem. And that's what he's driving at. Well, let's look at the first characteristic. Saving faith. Saving faith. A faith that's grounded in the righteousness of God in Christ can be described as a saving faith, a faith that accompanies salvation. Look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Now, the ESV rightly translates it, uh, can that faith save him? But the Greek grammar is actually a definite article, the faith. But it's used to describe a particular kind of faith. And that's why ESV translates it, that faith. What faith? A faith that doesn't bear works. A faith that does not possess works. Verse 14, someone says he has faith, but does not have works. That faith doesn't possess works. Can that faith save him? The word uh, dunamis, may dunamis, is hidden in there. You you can't see it uh, in the English text here, but it's in the Greek. Now, I know many people love to butcher the word dunamis, and we'll say the word dynamite, which is very true, comes from the Greek word dunamis, Dunamis just means power, it's accomplishment, it's effective. It's fair. I mean, we got our English word from it. We just don't want to work the wrong way. They weren't thinking of TNT. (laughs) That's for sure. That's working the wrong way. English took from there, not the other way around. But it's the idea of power. It can be translated, is it able? Does that faith have the power to save? It's a strong rhetorical question. And the way the grammar is set up is it's a resounding no It doesn't have the power. It's powerless. It's powerless. Which means something's very wrong. The word good there, what good is it? A better translation is what profit, what usage, what value, what vantage. Again, I'll say, if salvation is characterized by the mighty work of God to redeem sinners from the guilt, and the power of sin, and raise sinners in Christ to a new life, then how can a faith that professes to be united to that powerful Savior not profit the sinner? Something is very wrong. Well, what are we being saved from? Well, the context helps answer that question. In James 2.8, we find um, a description of this salvation. We're saved from a guilty position, the condemnation of the law, and we are saved from our disobedient practice, a transgression of the law. So guilt before the law and transgression. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you're doing well. Again, the sum of the law is love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Deuteronomy 6. Christ revisits that and affirms it in the Gospels. 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law's transgressors. Whoa. From partiality to convicted by the law's transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable or guilty for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Notice he's driven it out of partiality. Dealing with even the heart motives of our relationship to God and to others. All righty then. I'm guilty. Are you? I'm accountable. Are you? I'm a transgressor. Are you? Have you ever been partial? Even in the thoughts and things of your heart? Jesus in Matthew 5 tells us that the commandments of the law Go even to the motives of the heart, the attitudes of the heart. I love to say it's helpful to be humbled by apprising my heart in these terms. The sinful seed, the thought, 
for the tree that it will become if given the opportunity. A little bitterness and hate, murder if given the opportunity. A little lust, desire, adultery if given the opportunity. That's Matthew 5. You think that way and it'll start to humble you. And you'll quit comparing yourself to other people. <laughs> you may even see someone who's been released from prison and instead of saying, oh, I didn't do that, you're going to go, oh, but you know how much is hidden in here? The God of prizes. And I've done a real good job living like a hypocrite, hiding that. Nobody sees it. I'm in a worse position. So we look at the law and we see our guilt. We look at the law and we see our transgression. Hmm. Apparently this faith is pretty important. This faith that needs to be rooted in Christ. And if I'm freed from that, it should have some effect in my life. Let's look at the nature of this false faith, its character. Well, as we noted already, the word dunamai is used there, describing its, its inability. Can that faith, is that faith able to save him, verse 14? And the resounding answer is no, it cannot. So we can conclude it is powerless. It cannot affect any change of our position before God's law. It cannot change our practice. It is weak. It is futile. We know contrary to this, Romans 1.16 says, Paul describes the gospel in these terms, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes. This faith is not that. It's not rooted in the gospel. It is a profession only. Again, notice 14. He says, it describes his constant habit. He is constantly saying, I have faith. I have faith. I have faith. I have faith. But there's no evidence. It's profession. It's a claim. He says that it has no works. It does not possess works. The fruit of salvation is missing. In other words, he's just in keeping with what he said in James 1, 19 through 27, that this is a person who hears the word, but there's no doing. And there's deception. It's not a person who's received the word implanted, which is able to save the soul. It's not a person who's been brought forth by the word of truth. This life is powerless. Well, he provides a gauge that helps us look at that faith. A number of years ago, I bought a big old gas hog Dodge Ram Charger. I think it was 1986. The kids love it. And I'll tell you, we were, we were planning, strategizing to find something like that and lift it up and do all kinds of crazy things. So if you see a rusty old bucket one of these days running around, it's one of my plans. <laughs> but right now, the kids are all hitting 16. And so I was like, oh, that is sacrifice. <laughs> Anyway, we, we had one once upon a time that we keep looking back to. And I'll tell you, it, was, it took an hour to start in the winter. And I'd sit back there for an hour <laughs> trying to start the thing. Try to open the butterfly with the carburetor. And every once in a while, that thing would shoot fireworks from that engine. About burnt off our hands messing with that, that thing. And I thought, what is the point? <laughs> and you want one of those again? Yes. <laughs> Smell of good old gas. <laughs> anyway, there's one day we're driving, and all of a sudden, it quit. I'm like, what's going on? Well, come to find out. The gas gauge was broken, and there was no gas. So here I am looking like a dud, going back home, walking, trying to get gas, go fill it up. Gas gauge broken. Well, James says there's a gauge. You can look at the evidence. What does it tell us? What is the gauge on saving faith? If it's united to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if it's been liberated through the law of liberty, the gospel, from the guilt and power of sin, there should be fruit. This should be fruit. It should be saving faith. Second characteristic is living faith, living faith. And we see this in verses 15 through 17. I'll draw your attention to verse 17 first because it, it is packed in that little phrase. We'll start there. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works as dead. This is the diagnosis of this faith, and it's very helpful. Why is this faith without life? Well, he says, faith by itself is dead. Now, the English preposition doesn't help very much. It has the idea of something alongside of it. And we read by itself. Well, the preposition in the Greek describes faith which is according to itself. It is a faith that is derived from itself. That's important. It is a self-generated faith. It is a faith according to faith. Uh, idiomatically, it is a lifeless branch grafted into a lifeless branch. No wonder. Its state and condition, it is dead. 
It's been dead. It is dead. A lifeless branch grafted into a lifeless branch. Faith and faith. Faith has become Christ. Faith has become the Savior. Rather than receiving Christ, receiving the Savior, it's a faith that's according to itself. Self-generated. It's also without life because it's, it's fruitless. Verse 17 is very important, even to the interpretation of this text. He says, if it does not have works, it does not possess works. You see, when we read texts like this, we often think, well, is he saying that we need to add works to our faith in order to be saved? He's not saying, here's your faith, and then from your own works and your own efforts, add that to get righteousness. He is saying that a faith that is in the Lord possesses works. It owns it. How is that? Because according to 2.1, we are in Christ. We're united with Jesus. And so the fruit that comes out is the fruit of the righteousness of Christ. Look at Philippians 1.11. I love these kind of statements, so when we see them, we'll capture it. And since we're moving left, if you're really quick, go to John chapter 15. So Philippians 1.11, and then we'll journey back to John 15 and look at Christ's own words. Philippians 1.11 says that we are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Where does that fruit of righteousness come from? Jesus Christ. A faith that's united with Christ, its power is from Christ. It's his fruit, not ours. It's not us believing and then we're adding our own works. That's not what he's talking about here. John 15. John 15. Jesus. And this analogy that many of us are familiar with describes fruit in relationship to a vine. He says in 15.1, <clears throat> I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. There's a living relationship. It's a unity. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. It's an asking out of that abiding relationship. Verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so prove, and that's James' point. You show and demonstrate your disciple. How? There's fruit bearing. How is that? Union with Christ. It's his fruit. He's saying this particular faith doesn't have that. Maybe another illustration would be helpful. Not that I can improve on Jesus, and I probably should have done it the other way around and used an illustration and then topped it off with with the Lord, but it might be helpful. I am not uh, very mechanically inclined. And the fact that I used that word with the word plumbing, <laughs> it's going to tell you <laughs> there's a problem. So I, the, the plumbing underneath the sink broke a while ago, and I thought, well, I'm going to try to do it. My, my, my wife, as some of you know, grew up in a family where her dad has built homes. He's built a 1934 Ford from scratch, and so she's done that with him. And so here am I. I can parse Greek. <laughs> you know, what are we going to do with that? So she's been very patient. And so I'm there with, yes, a hammer, trying to separate the joints or whatever they are, the rings. And the thing cracked. <laughs> Not good. That would have been really uh, ridiculous of me to say, you know what, I, I, just, I, I can't really connect this to the main water source. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out to the lake, the closest lake we can find, a pond, and I'm going to fill up a bucket of water. I'm going to fill these pipes with that water. And then we'll use it from there. You go, there's no life there. It's stagnant. In fact, you could get sick. That's the picture of the false religions that try to use this text to say faith plus works. It's the idea of faith, we have faith, and we add our own works, self-generated works, in order to gain God's righteousness. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, that's condemnable. That's what Paul's getting at. It's faith apart from works. What James is saying is when that plumb line, when that, that plumbing is connected, and you turn on the faucet, 
It's coming from its source, which is in Christ. And there's evidence. There's fruit. It possesses. It owns this fruit. And there should be evidence of that. Notice also unprofitable. It's self-generated. It's fruitless. It is unprofitable. Verse 15 and 16. And this, this is hard. This is harsh. If a brother or sister... Uh, so he dresses believers in the body who are poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Naked. We get our word gymnasium from it. It seems such a strange word, poorly clothed or naked. Uh, the word gymnasium was used of Greek athletes who worked out naked in the gyms, on the fields, in the sporting events. And so this word came over in the Greek of poorly clothed. It's often used of someone who's just wearing their inner garments or their undergarments, as we might say. They're in rags. They're inadequately dressed. Notice they're also lacking in daily food. It may very well be that they're lacking for food for today. Maybe they're waiting for their paycheck tomorrow. But the description used here of daily describes a habit. They are malnourished. They are underfed. And they come. They have a need. What's the solution of one of the members? And notice how convicting he gets. He says, one of you. One of you. He addresses one of us. Pulls us right out. It's hypothetical. And you say, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what profit is that? Now, the answer that, that's given is this, this hypothetical hypothetical individual, meets nakedness with nakedness. He meets an empty hand with an empty hand. And then has the goal to pretend like he's met the need. Go in peace. That's a word that means you're fulfilled in the Lord. You have rest in the Lord. Be filled. Be warmed. The idea is that I've met the need. So not only has it met emptiness with emptiness, nothing with nothing, but it has the goal to pretend like it's actually done something that's valuable. And that's hypocrisy. It's pretense. Warmth without heat. Food without provision. Covering without clothes. This is a mirage. It doesn't satisfy. It's a hot vapor. It reminds me of the story of Hans Christian Andersen. I'm going to read it to you. It's been a while since, since I had read this. I think James is telling this story in a different uh, form. Hans Christian Andersen tells the story of two swindlers posing as magnificent weavers. They called for the finest gold and silk. After pocketing the goods, they set to weaving imaginary gold and silk clothes for the emperor. Time passed, and the emperor sent a minister to report on the progress. Afraid to admit he could not see the extravagant work, he told the emperor the clothes were magnificent. Later, the emperor sent another official, and he too, fearing his incompetence, came back with the same report. Finally, the emperor came for his clothes. Yet the emperor, afraid to admit his own inferiority, put on the imaginary clothes of gold and silver at the insistence of the weavers. The naked emperor paraded through the streets with his imaginary clothes, while the onlookers praised the emperor, afraid to admit that they couldn't see the fine clothes that everyone had been talking about, lest they too lose their positions. Finally, a young child cried out from the crowd, but he hasn't got any clothes. That's what James is saying. It's the emperor without any clothes. The so-called Christian minister and believer make a claim to faith, but it doesn't rest in Christ. It doesn't depend on the righteousness of Christ. It doesn't produce the fruit of righteousness which comes from Christ. It's a faith that makes a Christ out of faith, makes a Savior out of faith. Now, it's convicting. I just start going through and thinking through, uh, what things do I say, do I profess, but don't do anything about? Areas that I struggle with, I'm sure you do too. I could turn this around and say, do you struggle with these things? Sure you do. Prayer. I talk about the necessity of prayer. Struggle with prayer. I'd rather think about things and plan and strategize and actually take those thoughts and turn them over to the Lord in prayer. What's my problem? I'd rather pray to myself. The necessity of God's word. Sometimes it's tough to open up and go, I've read this a million times, read it again. The necessity of service, but given opportunity to sacrifice, going, hmm, do I have the budget for that? How do I deal with that? It doesn't become a joy. Talk about the necessity of forgiveness, but inside, bitterness, holding a grudge. 
talk about the sovereignty of God, but complain under trial. I talk about the gospel, but times I pass on evangelism. How about you? Now, what we do with this is going to express what kind of faith we have. Because if we go, oh, well, then I really struggle in these areas too. I'm going to go back to my performance and try to just do better and to earn God's favor. Then we realize we have a false profession. It's not a living faith. What we are meant to do is to go, I am a failure. And you know who I have? The righteousness of Christ credited to my account. And so it drives me back to him. And I rejoice in the fact that he prayed perfectly and that's been credited to my account. And he was in the word and submitted to the word and that's been credited to my account. And he served faithfully as an obedient servant and that's been credited to my account. And you find, wow, convicted and drove me back to Jesus. And out of your love for Jesus, it drives prayer and thanksgiving like a branch drawing from a vine. So it's a saving faith. It is a living faith that draws from Christ as opposed to an emperor with no clothes. And it's a loving faith, a loving faith. Verses 18 through 20, he sets up a hypothetical antagonist. 2, 18 through 20. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now, commentaries and Bible translations struggle with where this uh, quote actually begins and ends. Someone will say, you have faith. Does that go all the way through verse 20? If it does, then that person has actually taken James' position. So I think the ESV is correct. Uh, And most commentaries that I've looked at have taken the position that the quote ends with, you have faith and I have works. What is he, what is this hypothetical antagonist suggesting? Well, he may be drawing from varied giftedness. Well, some serve and some have faith. Some are given opportunities to work and some faith. And so we have a biblical precedent to see faith and works separated. So what's James answered this, all right? So you say you have faith. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. How do you show faith apart from its fruit? We can profess it all day long. We can talk about it all day long. But it's the fruit that demonstrates. The words show, verse 18, is very important to interpreting this text. Show me your faith. Demonstrate it. Prove it. And then in verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? Now, I'm going to make note of that. You may want to circle it because this is important to understanding James' view of justification here. He's not using it as to enter a right relationship with God, but to show and demonstrate that one has a right relationship with God. We'll unpack that in a moment, but you need to hold that thought. What is it that James is getting at? Well, one can confess doctrine But if there's no fruit, and that fruit is contradictory to that faith, how can that be genuine faith? And he appeals to even demons. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. the Shema found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. That's orthodox doctrine. He says even the demons believe that. They are very orthodox in their understanding of God. But they, what? Verse 19, they shudder. They shudder. They're fearful. They know this God, and they know this God will judge but there's no true, genuine faith. What is it that would mark their true, genuine faith? Well, I'd propose to you, it's love. How can I say that? Well, one, he goes back to the Shema, God is one. If you look at Deuteronomy 6, you'll see, uh, Here is where the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he unfolds the nature of the law there. And you can say rightly, and I will too, that we fail in that area. But guess we have... Guess what? We have a substitute, Christ, who stepped in and fulfilled the law, who loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength for us. So that would be credited to our account. Look at this idea of love in in James chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? 
faith and love. So we've argued that we're called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the call of the law. We failed, but we have one who's kept that for us. That will then work its way out in our life through loving obedience. A love that flows from Christ. Galatians 5, 6, Paul says, faith works through love. That is what the demons miss. They don't love God. They don't embrace him. They don't love his power and his glory and his redemptive plan. Believers who've had the perfect love of Christ credited to their account of law-keeping demonstrate that saving faith in their life through love. They're rich in faith and they love the Lord. In Exodus 16 through 18, I don't have time to go there, so I'm going to just commit it to you and then describe it. Exodus 16 through 18, we've been talking about Israel in the wilderness. In the beginning portion of chapter 16, Israel um, doesn't have any food, and they're pretty upset at the Lord. And they apprise him as one who has the intention to bring them out of Egypt in order to kill them. Their faith is being tested. And they find more identity with Egypt and its idols and its cucumbers and its provisions than in the Lord. In fact, they look at the Lord's deliverance and say, your goal is to kill me. Then you go to Exodus 17. Oh, by the way, in chapter 16, God says, I'm going to provide in order they may know that I'm the Lord, that I'm their redeemer. He provides manna. In chapter 17, they don't have any water and they come to the same conclusion. Moses, you brought us here to kill us and our children. So wilderness testing, faith is tested. God, your goal in delivering us was to kill us. Ironically, in chapter 18, Jethro, a Midianite, the father-in-law of Moses, comes to Moses and Moses recounts the deliverance of God towards Israel out of Egypt. And you know what Jethro responds with? Not, oh, he's trying to kill you. He is amazed. And he glories in the Lord and says, he is the God of heaven and earth. There's only one God. And he is the deliverer. He prizes redemption appropriately. And then he makes sacrifice, acknowledges his sin, and rejoices in the Lord. Rejoices. A Gentile comes into the wilderness and hears the same account and says, he's the deliverer. Now that's loving faith. That is a living faith that apprises redemption rightly. He's not left me in the wilderness to abandon me and kill kill me. He's testing faith and driving me to recognize that he is my redeemer. Fourthly, it's a vindicating faith. A vindicating faith. And here's where we deal with some of the the tussle of commentaries, the Catholic side, evangelical side, trying to deal with James' argument here. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead." A couple things to keep in mind. One, in verse 17, we're talking about a faith that possesses works, not a faith in which we take our own self-works and add it to the mixture to gain righteousness. Keep that in context. Notice also, number two, that we have seen it is a demonstration of saving faith. We looked at verse 18 and 20. Show, show, demonstrate, proof. This leads us to another argument. Justify has two aspects. Two aspects. You may want to write these down. One, vindication based on a right standing. Vindication based on a right standing. In other words, it assumes you are already in a right standing and there needs to be vindication, proof that you are in a right standing. The second aspect is a legal declaration to enter a right standing, to enter it. It assumes one is guilty and they are justified. So they enter a right standing with God. And that's what James 2.23 is getting at, where Abraham believed God, it was credited with righteousness. He's guilty. How can he have a right standing? Through faith. He enters a right standing with God. 
And we know based on the data of Scripture that that is the credited righteousness of Christ's obedience to his account, received through faith. Allah, Philippians 3, 7 through 12. He didn't look to his own works of the law, but the righteousness of God received through faith. But there's the second, and we'll go back to it, vindication, assuming a right standard. And that's what James is hitting at. One is already in a right standing and needs to be vindicated. We see that used in Luke and Matthew where wisdom is vindicated by her children. Is it real wisdom? Yes, it's real wisdom. It's vindicated, justified, if you will, through the fruit. So when we look at verse 21, justified by works, justified by works and not by faith alone, verse 24, he's describing this idea of vindication. Is this a living faith that has received the righteousness of God? And fruit vindicates that. Now, we also see it in the illustration. The illustration he uses, verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works, vindicated by works? That is, remember, verse 17, the faith that owns these works. When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Now, this episode in Genesis 22 was 30 years after Genesis 15.6. In Genesis 15.6, he's received the righteousness of God through faith. As God has promised the seed, he has a righteous standing through faith. 30 years later, the Lord asks him to go sacrifice his son. And when he does, but the Lord stops him and provides a substitute pointing to Christ, God says, now I know that you fear me. Vindicate it. It's a living faith. A living faith that's received the righteousness of God. And there's validation for that. This is why James can say, He entered into this righteous standing in verse 23. That's why Paul in Romans 4 can say the same thing, that Abraham received righteousness through faith, not by works. But there should be proof. There should be evidence. And that's James' concern. That's his concern. Now let's look at just a couple, as we close, a couple characteristics of this faith. And notice faith is the actor. Again, it's not faith and me taking my self-works and adding them along faith to somehow enter into a relationship with God. That is a Catholic view. This is a faith alone in Christ alone. It does bear fruit, though. Verse 22. You see that faith was active along with his works. Notice the actor is faith. It's the subject. The active force working along with works. It has possessed it. It owns it. 22b. Faith was completed by his works. To complete a task or mission is the idea, to bring to maturity. Uh, the idea is used in 1 John 4.12. I'll read it to you. You don't need to go there. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us or completed in us. Now, our love does not complete God's love in the sense that it's faulty, but God's love comes to expression or reaches its intended goal in our love for one another. Abraham's faith is intended by God to bear fruit. Had a mission. A faith that has been has received the righteousness of God has a mission to bear fruit. And that fruit will vindicate that living faith. 23. And the scripture was fulfilled. The scripture was fulfilled. To fill up. It's used of filling up nets in Matthew 13, 48. It's used of filling up houses in John 12, 3. Particularly when it's used of Old Testament quotations, it means to bring to significance. Often used of prophecy, fulfilling a prophecy or filling up a prophecy. Saying, here's its, here's its meaning, here's its, its significance. So our application here, Abraham's saving faith credited with God's righteousness found significance and meaning in his life of obedience. That was its mission, its task. And then in verse 24, He says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, keep in context. He's talking about dead faith. Dead faith. A demonic faith. That's the issue. Now, he also appeals to Rahab. Rahab had the same experience in Joshua chapter 2. She believed God. She said he's the deliverer. But it was demonstrated, that faith was demonstrated by protecting the spies. And again, she was vindicated by her deeds. It showed it was real faith. 
Fifthly and lastly, and we've already been weaving it through this whole sermon, so it's very quick. Justifying faith. Justifying faith. It's a faith that receives the righteousness of God. It's imputed to their account, credited, reckoned to their account, so that God can say, make a declaration of righteousness, even though we're not. How can that be? Scripturally, we come, as Philippians 3 says, and we look at our best deeds and count them filthy rags. Rubbish. And the word of God commends to us Jesus Christ. And we know we need perfect righteousness to stand before God. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, 48, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the requirement. I cannot stand before God without righteousness and perfection. How do I get it? The one whose gaze penetrates the thoughts and intentions of my heart. How do I receive it? My uh, daughter, this is not in the notes, so it's dangerous to do this, took a picture yesterday of my dog returning to its vomit and made the statement, this is like legalism from Colossians 2. And I'm thinking, you know, this is interesting because the vomit is not going to supply any benefit. The dog's returning to its vomit. Colossians 2 describes the flesh. We try to overcome the flesh by running back to the flesh. In order, we we cannot attain righteousness of God by running to our self-righteousness. It's impossible because our self-righteousness is itself vomit, if you will. I'm sorry, that was a little gross, but uh, kids these days, right? Taking pictures on Facebook. (laughs) Where do we get it? Christ. We despair of our self-righteousness and we run to him. And the Bible says through faith in Christ, he credits Christ's perfection to our account. So that we have the confidence, the living hope, because Christ is alive, that our righteousness is in heaven. John Bunyan was struggling with his, he's struggling with conviction over sin. He uh, was, was quite the troublemaker. And one day he was walking and was thinking on scripture And he came to this simple conclusion. He said this, my righteousness is in heaven. It's outside of me. I can't lose it. I can't hold on to it. It's secured in him. He's already secured it for me. And that righteousness, which is received by faith, produces fruit. So if you're convicted, praise God. It's a testimony that you love a righteous Savior. Let's pray. Father, we... We thank you so much for the promises of your word. We thank you for Christ, that you keep commending us to Jesus Christ. When we see our shame and guilt, we rejoice in a great Savior who is seated. He's been accepted on our behalf, and we know that since he is accepted, our representative, that we are accepted in him. We can only but rejoice. Increase our faith, we ask, Lord, in the times of our wilderness travels. In the times of our trials, remind us that we lack nothing, for we have everything in Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.